This week we're going to finish up 1 Peter chapter 2. Next week we'll talk about Mother's Day. And then the week after that we'll hop into uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. So that's your, uh, that's your few week outlook. Like I'm a weatherman. You know. But uh, you might be thinking to yourself, oh good, it's only four or five verses this week. He'll be done in 10, 15 minutes. Ha! Wrong. <laughs> oh, no, but it is, uh, when I timed myself yesterday, uh, the last time I practiced, rehearsed, whatever word you want to use, it was shorter than other weeks. I'm cognizant of that, not because of Sunday school, sorry, but because my dad every week goes, I have to edit down your sermons. Can you speed up a little bit? Fine. We're going to be here in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. And I want to point out right from the start, you know, back in the, I believe it was in the 1800s, is when they first introduced uh, chapters and, and verse numbers into our Bibles. Might have been a little bit earlier than that, but in the whole of history, it's a relatively new concept. So even in the early church days, obviously, and throughout the Middle Ages and stuff, they would have read our Bible as their letters, as they were supposed to be read, uh, how they were originally written. And so I want to point out, before we even hop into this, yes, we're breaking this up a little bit. And yes, it works well, because you go by the paragraphs and, and stuff like that when you break things up. But we need to be cognizant of the fact that everything still flows together in the entire book, or in this case, and in most cases in the New Testament, the entire letter. So remember, weeks ago, we looked at the very beginning of, of 1 Peter, and we talked about this idea of salvation and our predestination and eternal security. We, we dove into that because that's what Peter does. And then we continued on and we looked at, okay, because of that, what do we do? Preparing our minds and such. We looked at that in the second half of 1 Peter 1. And then the first part of 1 Peter 2, we looked at that we're living stones being built up by this cornerstone who is Christ, the stone that the builders rejected, right? And then last week, we looked at, okay, honor your authorities. Honor those who have been put in authority over you, whether they be bosses, teachers, governments, parents, whatever they be, if they've been put in an authority role over you, honor and respect them. Don't have to agree with them the whole time. You don't have to say, oh, yes, well, the government said it. That means it must be right. No, but you have to be honoring and respectful of those put in authority over you. I'm bringing that all back into, into, our, into our memories because the title of this one is, of course, you can see it there, is the, on, your, on your notes, is The Example. And because we're going to see that Christ is our example, not just for how we live, but for how to respect our governments. Because the whole thing leads up to this. Peter is basically saying, I've talked to you now for an R's, two chapters worth. I've told you a lot of philosophical things. Let me show you the perfect example of how to live those out. And then you'll see when we get into chapter 3, we get into some practical things. Peter deals with the philosophical ideas first, and then he's going to dive into the practical. But before he dives into the practical, he gives us this example. Let's read it. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 
And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Number one, our example. Peter starts this section off by saying, For you have been called to this purpose. What purpose? Let's look back at verse 20 that we talked about last week. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. You have been called for the purpose, to be frank, of suffering patiently for your Savior. Your purpose on this earth is to do that. Now, it's faceted underneath that. It shows itself in different ways. But when you bring it all back, that's where you're going. And it says, okay... Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. Christ came, and one of his things that he did, obviously, we know it, was to be our example. Yes, he came, and his most important thing that he did was dying on the cross and rising again for our sins. Christ could have been the best example, is the best example there ever was and will be, but if he didn't die and be resurrected, it really doesn't matter what the example was. We wouldn't have any hope anyway. So after he fulfilled that first thing, he's also our example, his secondary role for us. Verse 22 says, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. This is from Isaiah 53. That's where it's, uh, it's quoted out of, Isaiah 53. And Peter is saying, listen, our example was perfect in every way, shape, or form, perfect. And then he continues on, and he goes, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. Did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. I don't know if anybody in history has been treated as badly by their ruling authority than Christ was. He's under the Roman law which means the Jews have to go to hit the Romans in order to crucify him. They obviously do, because it works out that way. And his government stands over him, and they're like, okay, maybe we'll just whip him. Nope. Maybe we'll just beat him. Nope, they're still not satiated. Fine, we'll give him our highest form of punishment, or lowest, depending on which way you want to look at it. And we'll crucify him. But while this is all happening, while this whole thing is happening, notice it says, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats. How hard would that be for you and me? If our government, you know, stepped in and was like, well, you can't, you're going to do this or you can't do that. You know, I'm going to be honest, I've already heard people that say bad things. They just do. We like to beat up and bash our government. We like to beat up and bash our authorities. We like to beat up and bash anybody that tells us to do something. Whether it's right or wrong, we still like to do it because we don't like to be told what to do. And yet Christ is there. He's suffering and he utters no threats. In fact, he does the opposite. He asks for the forgiveness of their sins in that moment as he hangs on the cross. And then look forward to Stephen, who's looking back at Christ. And as Stephen is being stoned, what does he say? Forgive them. They don't 
They know not what they do. I don't know about you, but if I was being stoned to death, which sounds like a pretty hard way to die, I'm going to lay in this pit and everybody's just going to start throwing rocks at me. Unless somebody gets like a kill shot right to my temple, I'm going to suffer a lot before I die. I don't think that I could say, forgive them. I don't think that I could. Yet our example, Christ does. He suffered just as we will suffer. And yet in that suffering, he didn't do wrong. Yet oftentimes we like to use that as an example. Oh, or not as an example, as an excuse. Oh, my life is so hard. My life is so difficult. This and this is going on. So why does it matter that I have done X? Because it's still wrong. Oh man, my life is so hard. I, I don't make a lot of money. Why does it matter that I didn't, you know, I wasn't completely honest on my taxes. I just needed that little extra to get through. Because it's still wrong, and I'm not accusing anybody here of being fraud on their taxes. But just stuff like that. We like to use our hardships. We like to use our sufferings as excuses for doing wrong. Yet our example says, no, there's no excuse for doing wrong. I don't care what's happening to you. Because unless you're being whipped with a cat of nine tails and beaten within an inch of your own life, and then crucified to, you know, take your life, you haven't suffered the way that he has. And, and I mentioned it earlier, you will never carry the weight of everybody's sin upon your shoulders. So you will never suffer the way that he did. And yet he does not revile in return. He doesn't utter a threat. But then here's the thing, the last part of verse 23. But kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Notice it doesn't say he entrusted himself to his friends, to his family, to his people, to his government. No, he entrusted himself to God. He said in the garden of Gethsemane, take this cup from me, but your will be done. He entrusted himself to God. Just as we should. Now, just as in that example, Christ's example for us, it doesn't mean things are going to go peachy for us. It didn't really go great for him in a lot of ways. But it means he entrusted himself to the one who can be trusted. The one who says, yes, I know this path that you're going to walk is hard, but I will be with you every step. I'm the one who makes and creates and sustains. I am the protector. I am the healer. I am your provider. Trust me. Yes, your government's going to hate you. Your people are going to hate you. Why? Because they hated Christ. We talked about that weeks ago when we looked at uh, John 17. We'll be hated because he was hated. But you entrust yourself to him, God. That means allowing governments to do sometimes what they're going to do. It means people are going to be mean. It means stuff's not going to go well. I put that in quotes because the way that we think things should go well usually isn't the right way anyway. But he entrusts himself to God just as we should, who judges righteously. You see, we humans, when we look at things, we have our own biases, we have our own ideas that we bring to every judgment. As much as we can say, well, I'm an unbiased judge, you're not, because your entire backstory, your history, informs what you believe right now. And so it could be a court case for me. Let's say, for some reason, I get called to be a jury member at a court case in Arizona. I don't know these people, never met them. Yet I will still have a biased opinion strictly because of what I believe. But God, 
has a righteous opinion. Fact. It's really not an opinion. God can look at something and accurately divide it and say, this is truth and this is not. And here's the thing. You and I standing before him for thousands of years, he would have gone, I see sin. But because Christ entrusted himself to God, because Christ sits at his right hand, we can now trust him to judge us righteously because of Christ. And that's our example of what Christ did. Number two, number two, his death for our life. His death for our life. We all know the the verse, uh, I believe it's in Romans, right, where, you know, to live is Christ, to die is gain. We love to quote it. We have it, you know, in our, in our kitchens or whatever in fancy lettering. Oh, this is great. Do we really understand what that means? That's not today's sermon, but it's not a nice hunky-dory thing. But verse 24 says, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, or, and that part's taken right out of Isaiah 53, for by his stripes, we are, we were, we will be healed. You see, I said it right before then about God judging righteously. The only reason we can stand before him is because of those stripes, because of those wounds. Christ had to die in order for us to live. It puts, a different, it puts that verse in maybe a little bit of a different perspective to know that Christ died so that we could live, so that we could live for him and then eventually die for his gain. It's kind of cyclical. It's great. But that's why you can stand before him. His wounds are the only things that heal us. That's it. His wounds are the only thing that allow us to, to stand before God, our creator. That's it. Because if we try to stand before him without that blood, which we just, you know, we just, we just praised and had fellowship together earlier this morning about that blood, without that blood washing us white as snow, we would be standing up there in our dirty rags and God would go, depart from me. And that would be the end of it. Why? Verse 25. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. You ever wonder why so often in scripture we're referred to as sheep? If you've ever been around sheep, they're stupid. They've got acres and acres of green pasture that looks beautiful and it's great. And they're like, hey, look at that one tuft of grass on the other side of the fence. i got to get that. You see, a lot of times we look at the fences God puts up to say, well, you're trying to keep me from getting to something. When in reality, he's keeping us from being destroyed by something. You see, that, that, that sheep jumps the fence and starts eating that one little tuft of grass, and then all the wolves are there to eat the sheep. I'm going to tell you something you may not like to hear. You're stupid. It's okay, so am I. Because we're all sheep. And we all went astray. But Christ, our shepherd, called us back to him. He went and found us. Because we couldn't do it on our own. We couldn't find. We ate the tuft of grass. And we were being devoured by wolves. And we were like, how do we get back over the fence? It seems to be taller from this side. But he came and he got us. And I love this. The last four words of that. The guardian of your souls. Isn't that so encouraging to you? Your soul is guarded by God. It's guarded by the one who can't be beaten. It's guarded by the one who can't lose. This is the last verse 
of chapter 2, and it harkens all the way back to the beginning of the letter, where your soul is protected by God, and nothing can stand against it. He ends this philosophical two chapters the same way he began it, by reminding us all we're his, we're Christ's, and we can't escape that. We can't leave that. He, we are his. And we'll, he'll never let us go. He's never going to be defeated by circumstance, by our enemy, Satan, by time, by anything. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. He began by reminding us about it, and he's ending by reminding us about it. I mentioned it earlier. This is all kind of philosophical stuff, salvation and this kind of stuff, the stuff that we can't, we can't really quantify, we can't grab onto, we can't necessarily, you know, do. We're going to dive into, in a few weeks, godly living and what that actually looks like, some practical example of that. But we've got to understand the philosophical nature of things before we can dive into the practical nature of things. Understand it as best we can. Salvation will never make full sense to us because it's not foolish, that's not the word I'm looking for. It's, it doesn't make sense to us because why would God, who didn't need us, who we turned our backs on, decide to come and save us? But he did. It'll never make sense, that's okay. Because if it made sense, we'd all be going to hell. But instead we get to go to heaven. Because God did something that didn't make sense. Christ is our example. You want to look at how to live life. You want to look at how to be respectful and honoring of the government, of the authorities put over you. Not just the government, but of the authorities put over you. Look at him. Look at his life. Look at what he did. Yeah, we have so many examples. Paul says uh, in, I forget which book now, but he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Yes, Paul is a great example. Peter is a great example. Stephen's a great example. We all have these great examples, but Christ was and is the perfect example. And you got to watch and learn from what he does. Yeah, we're not perfect. We won't be perfect until we get to heaven. And then we will be made perfect. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be striving towards it. What then? Shall I sin more so that grace may abound? Let it never be so. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you. We thank you. For the example, we thank you that, that you don't just tell us to do things, but that you, you give us examples of how to do them. You don't just say, okay, do this, great, I'm leaving and you've got to figure it out. No, 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 You say, do this, and here is an example of how to do it, of how to live. I saved you, therefore do this. And because of that, therefore, do this. And I'm going to show you how. I myself will show you how. Father, we praise you. We love you. It's in the name of your son. We thank you for it. Amen and amen.